Welcome to a new wave of entrepreneurship. I'm Latifa Farah, Associate Creative Producer at Venture for Canada and the producer of a new wave of entrepreneurship. The focus of this podcast is to hear from changemakers and Canadian entrepreneurs to learn about how they've developed their entrepreneur mindset and skills. We'll be chatting with CEOs, founders, and successful business leaders about their career journeys. We're excited to dive into these conversations about how to foster your entrepreneur mindset and drive. We are super excited to have Mike Wessinger on the Venture for Canada podcast, A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Mike has a wealth of experience building one of Canada's most successful technology companies, and we're super excited to learn his, from his insights uh, today. Mike, how are you doing this morning? Really well. Very well. Thank you. In another interview, you talk about the importance of culture uh, and how culture is essential to building a really successful uh, company. How would you describe the culture of Point Click Care? Yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting. I would, yeah, we go by this um, tagline of the culture pillars, passion, people, and performance, but I'm not sure, you know, going into the details of that accurately describe it. I would say that... Um, while we don't behave like a startup any longer, some of the things that we learned that became um, second nature to us during the startup phase still exist today, which is an intense focus on um, the health of the customer, looking, you know, really taking care of our customers. But also, you know, understanding that means taking care of the team is incredibly important. And so it's almost familial. Like we are, we look out for each other. We, um, a deep respect for you know people in the organization, a deep respect for our customers. So a very um, human-focused organization, I would say. With um, uh, with a, it, it's almost um, a dichotomy. We have this deep passion for winning, but there's a deep sense of humility. If uh, if and, and those those don't always go together. So we love to win. In fact, you know we want to be number one at everything we do. But we think we could do it and we could still do it and remain, um, remain humble. That's a very Canadian approach, uh, which is awesome. Uh, you also talk about in this other interview, the importance of institutionalizing culture, particularly as a company grows and scales. In your case, you've grown from just you to now thousands of, of people. Uh, how do you as a, a executive team institutionalize the culture within the company? Yeah, so when we got to a point where we started to recognize that the culture was slipping in a way that we, yeah, that we didn't particularly love, and uh, you know we'd gone through a, a hyper growth period, and you know we the early people had this real connection to the, the the customer DNA and how focused they were on making you know they could make a direct connection between making the customer successful and happy and being able to make their mortgage payment and keeping their job, and um, but then we woke up one day and realized there was 800 people that had never seen a day when it was difficult to get customers. They thought customers fell on trees. They thought there was money to throw at everything, and so uh, we said, "Wow, there's there's something you know it, something's gone uh, amiss with the culture," and we said, "All right." We need to reset it. What served us in the early days because of the environment we were in and the external pressures that were forcing us to behave the way we did, we're no longer there. It had to be driven from within. So we started with, uh, let's define what that culture needs to look like. Now, the mistake we first made was, you know, we thought we had almost crowdsourced and get groups of people together. How do you think about the culture? After about the fourth one of those meetings, I said, you know, it, it, this has got to stop. These are great inputs. But the reality is, you know, my brother, Dave, and I are leading the company. We're the founders of the company. We're going to determine what it is, the culture it is that we want. So you can't outsource. You can't give it to HR. You can't crowdsource it. We, we defined the culture that we want in very explicit terms. And once we had defined that culture, we said, all right, now how do we go and institutionalize it? 
well, I said, you know, there's orientation sessions where we're going to put people through two days. We said, well, you know, we've already got a thousand, twelve hundred people at the time, you know, that we need to, you know, we need to set the expectations. So, you know, it was like, you know, considerable expense that we ran, you know, twelve hundred people through a two day um, culture and reorientation of, hey, this is, you know, told a lot of the stories that people hadn't heard from the early days of, you know, the bootstrapping, how difficult it was, you know, to win customers, to win the market. And then, you know, got very explicit, you know, in interactive workshops with culture ambassadors on how it is, um, you know, what, what is the culture that we expect at Point Click Care. And, uh, and honestly, for some people, they said, hey, that, you know, that's not what I signed up for. And some people volunteered to leave. And for others, they're like, wow, this is, this is incredible. This is exactly the culture I came for. So it started off the two-day orientation sessions. We had culture ambassadors. And then we would try to weave in you know, the, into our, you know, our reward systems and our recognition systems, it, it, the things that, that we, that were related to our culture. So, you know, whether it was formal programs or informal, you know, spot bonuses, that kind of things all related to people displaying the behaviors that we wanted to, uh, to see in the organization. There's a lot of uh, discussion around the great resignation right now as, as we record this in March 2022, uh, and employee retention is probably one of the most uh, talked about uh, topics uh, at, at board tables around the, the country. Uh, what are some of the ways that uh, you retain uh, a staff uh, at the company and, and foster a workplace where people really want to, to stay? Yeah, I'm not sure that we've decoded it, and I spend a lot of time with other uh, with other uh, leaders of tech organizations. Uh, we seem to have suffered a little less than many of our uh, our, our uh, counterparts, um, you know. But we're trying a lot of different things, and the first one is you know recognizing that we're not going back to people coming to the office nine to five Monday to Friday, and that we have to embrace a hybrid work model. Um, and we also don't believe that you know the going to a model of completely remote work serves us well. I, I just know that the few days we've be, uh, spent in the office, you know, people that uh, I've been developing a relationship with over uh, the last 15 months, let's call it, in a 24-hour period, being able to go and break bread with them and spend time with them, be physically in the same uh, location with them, I, you know, I got to know them better from a personal perspective in 24 hours than I had in the previous 15 months. So I think, um, you know, we had to commit to a hybrid model, which means that people can feel comfortable that when they join Point Click Care, that, you know, one day we're not going to wake up and say, oh, by the way, you have to start coming to the office Monday to Friday, um, that they know that, you know, they'll never be asked to come in more than a day or two a week. And, um, and that we're, you know, going to give them all the tools they need to, to, to be successful. Yet we're going to, you know, recognizing the value of bringing people together we're just going to do it in a, in, a, in a different way. We're going to come in for very focused meetings. We've reconfigured every one of our offices to have neighborhoods, not individual desks and lockers. So you know, it feels a bit like high school, but you go in and you can leave your stuff there, but you come in and you pick a day where uh, you can go to your neighborhoods. But we, you know, seeing the energy around getting people together, we said, you know, if you spread people out during the week and uh, you get, you know, 10 or 15% of the staff and any of the offices, I mean, I'm not going to show up at our Salt Lake City office and really go there. And, and if there's nobody there, I'm like, why am I even here? So we're, we're going to start off. We're going to pick a day. If you're going to go in just for the social interaction, you know, I mean, yes, there's going to be plan times where you get together with your team. But if you're just going to show up and you want to interact to have those casual collisions, meet with some leadership, have lunch, maybe have a drink after work, pick Wednesday. We just pick Wednesday that if, you're, if there's going to be one day a week, you're going to show up in the office and you want to be able to connect with your colleagues. Let's try and focus it around Wednesday. And we think that's going to be a pretty good recipe for getting people, you know, uh, informally uh, build those, those incredibly important trust relationships with their colleagues and, and give access for, you know, for, 
for uh, yeah for um, for new staff to be able to to interact with the leadership of the organization and get some visibility. Yeah, it's a great approach. Uh, I read an article a couple of months ago, and it said that the worst uh, situation in the new world of work is doing uh, video calls from the office. So the point being is, if you're going to the office and you drive all the way there just to to chat with people on video, some of whom are also in the office or just in other lo locations. And to your point, Mike, the, the biggest benefits of going to the office is that social is it's that tacit knowledge transfer. It's building relationships with other people. And if people aren't, if you can't trust that people are going to be in an office on a certain day, why go on uh, into the office uh, in the first place? Kind of uh, shifting gears a little bit, as you uh, provide kind of responses to some of the questions, I'm thinking a little bit of an interview I listened to last year with uh, Harley Finkelstein, the president of uh, uh, Shopify. Uh, and he talks about how when you're a rapidly growing uh, company um, like yours, uh, people need to like requalify for the job kind of like each year because the job kind of changes so much. And in your case, like your role has over 25 years changed so much from being just managing yourself at the beginning to now thousands of, of employees. So how did you scale your leadership abilities from running a, a one person operation you know, yourself to now uh, managing a team with uh, thousands uh, of people. I would say that the the people that I have seen uh, scale the the furthest are those people who are um, lifelong learners and curious, and um, and people who recognize that as the leader. Let's say you're um, the leader of the organization or a leader of your department. So as a leader of the organization, my job is to work on the organization, not in it. And if you're the leader of call it product engineering, your job is to work on it, not in it. And the people who have recognized that their job is to work on it and build it and get the right talent, people that are better than them at very specific functions, uh, seem to be the ones who have scaled uh, the furthest. Now, I have seen this pattern also. There are people that were good, you know, that were good to you know, to 10 million. And there are the people, they were good in the, you know, they, you know, 10 million to 100 million. They, they wouldn't have been good before, you know, 10 million because they, they didn't really get the bootstrap world, but they were really good in the 10 to 100. But then they got to the, you know, the 100 or even 200 million. They're like, oh, I can't go on these gut instincts anymore. I need more systems. So I haven't had that experience. And, and then, you know, we're starting to see people that are tapping at sort of the half billion mark that were, you know, good at, you know, 200 million. And they sort of tap out. So not everybody makes that, that leap. But if, if I had to look at the things that, um, the common traits are those people who work on, you know, on their department, not in it, and they're, they're lifelong learners and curious. And those are the people that seem to have unlimited scaling potential. How do you cultivate your own sense of, of lifelong learning? Uh, you know, I think I'm just naturally curious. Um, you know, I, 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 if I don't know how to do something, I want to go learn how to do it. And, you know, the, you know, sometimes that means picking up a book, but honestly, for me, the, the best way to learn how is connect with somebody who's already done it before. And not somebody who's who's seen it theoretically from the sidelines, like a consultant, but the actual person who's done it before. So getting on the phone with another CEO, you know, for, for example, when I went to make the change from uh, CEO to executive chair, I wanted to talk to half a dozen people who had done it successfully before. And I got on the phone and they were really incredibly gracious with their time. And I spent an hour, hour and a half with each one of them, took all of my notes, found the commonalities. I like, go, all right, this is a pretty good playbook uh, for for how it is, I'm going to make the transition and avoid the the pitfalls that they may have run into, and and take advantage of the things that they found to be successful. One thing I've noticed from interviewing uh, dozens of different entrepreneurs and, and leaders uh, through this podcast is a, a trait that many entrepreneurs have is a is a tendency towards anxiety. That uh, the the kind of only uh, what's it the famous uh, there's a famous saying only the paranoid survive by the was it uh, Andy Grove the former CEO of of, uh, of Intel. Uh, and 
anxiety can be kind of a double-edged sword. It, at a certain point, it can be kind of crippling. Uh, and it's been interesting. There's a, a kind of a, a peer group of other um, entrepreneurs that I'm part of that I've, I've met with regularly for the last two years. And one of the things that's opened my eyes to being part of this group is just how many entrepreneurs really struggle with anxiety uh, and the pressure uh, and managing young kids and a growing business and health issues with family members and all of these different things. Uh, how have you uh, managed anxiety through your journey uh, of building Point Click Care into the huge company it is today? Yeah, I would say in the, in the early days, not well. Um, you know, the days when we were bootstrapping, couldn't figure out, you know, you, you'd meet payroll and then you'd you know, take a big breath and go, wow, I got another two weeks and we need to make another payroll. Um, those days were difficult. I didn't have a good way to manage that. I didn't sleep very often. I spent, you know, 18 months just, uh, you know, trying to chase the next payroll. And that was incredibly difficult. So I don't know that I, I found a good way to manage it. But I think, you know, um, you know, once we got through the sort of the most challenging spot, I think it was just compartmentalizing. I think a lot of it was making sure you take, uh, take time away and uh, compartmentalize, like just park it away um, and, uh, and, and, and just shut down. You're not thinking about work. And I found that um, uh, exercise helped a lot with that. So daily, I mean, you know, uh, every day I find you know, some time to go and spend, uh, spend in the gym or go for a run, get on a bike, ski, whatever it might be. Um, and I find that helps clear the mind a lot. And, um, and then, you know, you, at some points you just need to unplug, you know, put your device down, don't check your email, don't, uh, you know, don't carry your phone around and, and, and truly unplug. And I think that um, um, that's helped me a lot. So I don't, I don't have a lot of anxiety these days. I, so uh, in your last uh, response, you were talking, you talked about the, the pressure of just meeting payroll and the financial challenges that the company faces at an early stage. And one of the things I can imagine is a challenge is as a company grows, as you, as you raise potentially a lot of money uh, from investors, uh, it's easy for a lot of fat to grow on a company where people just say, oh, we're, we'll expense this or uh, there's enough budget for this. And that kind of scrappy uh, zero-based budgeting kind of approach that it can exist in a really early stage can kind of go out the window. So how do you as a leader foster a kind of thrifty mentality uh, as part of your, your kind of culture? Thrifty in a good way, in the sense of, of not of being very discerning and spending resources uh, as you scale a company to the size that Point Clicker is today. Yeah, so we we actually had that uh, challenge where you know we we had very disciplined approach early on because we were bootstrapped and uh, we we really had no venture options and uh, and we really had to go uh, beg, borrow, and steal. You know, stretch out suppliers and and uh, and get customers to pay in advance. And so we built a good discipline around, hey, we've got a challenge. We've got to think our way through this problem. And, and, we've, and we solved a lot of problems by just thinking our way through it. And it would have been easier to throw money at it. But then we woke up one day and every time there's a problem, it's like, well, I'll just hire a body. They'll go sort that problem out. Or let's just go hire a consultant. So people started throwing money at problems instead of thinking through problems. We went, this, is a, this is a real challenge. So we, uh, we finally went back and said, look, the only way that we're going to get people to think through challenges if we impose constraints on them. So we got very disciplined about our budgeting process and said, look, you know, if I'm going to limit the, uh, the, the, you know, the resources you have in order to solve this challenge. And then you're necessarily going to have to think through the, uh, you know, think through a creative way to solving the problem versus just throwing money at the problem. Because if you continue to do that, yeah, you may solve the problem, but you'll wind up with so much bloat, you'll ultimately be uncompetitive because you've done everything the easy way that, you know, that, that you know, hasn't been thoughtful. And um, that's not what got us started. That's not what made us successful in the beginning. 
And uh, we had to go back and, and make sure that we uh, imposed uh, limitations on resources so that people would be creative uh, with their problem solving. Many of the first 25 employees that you hired of the company stayed on with the company for many years and are still with the company uh, today. What tips would you give to an entrepreneur in terms of when they're looking at that, the first uh, 20, 30 employees on really how to hire people that will grow with the company over time? You know, in the early days, we couldn't, um, couldn't hire the people we needed because we couldn't afford them. We hired the people that we could afford mostly. But the one thing they shared was uh, that they had a, a commitment to the mission. They, yeah, they felt really a part of what it is we were building. So we called them the founder's circle because they all behaved and uh, acted like founders. And, um, and felt um, an incredible attachment to the organization as though it were their own because they, they, they came on to her so early. And, uh, and, and for so many of them, it, it kept them with the organization for a long time. And yeah, some of them you know, outgrew the position they were in and they recognized that, but we you know, did a great job of replant, said, hey, you know, you've sort of hit, hit the ceiling over here. You haven't seen it before or done it before, but over here you could do a great job. And by the way, you, now you've got a, somebody who's joined the organization who's done this stuff before and you're going to learn a ton from them. And I think uh, we always had graceful ways of, you know, finding, you know, spots in the organization for the, you know, the, the early people that, you know, behaved as though they were founders. What's your biggest lesson learned uh, in terms of uh, kind of a mistake when it comes to, to hiring? So you're never going to get every hire perfect. Um, and you, you know, so you test for culture, make sure that they're cultural fit. And of course they need to be capable of, uh, of doing the job. They need the skill set. I mean, that's an easier one, right? You can set, check on their resume and you can check the references and, and that's an easier one to check for. Um, but sometimes you, uh, you don't get the cultural fit. So I think the biggest mistake is if you find somebody who's not a cultural fit, letting them hang out in that seat for too long. And it, 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 you know, it, the vast majority of the time, there's, it's not a, a, an issue of their, you know, they're, they're malicious um, or they're, you know, they're, they're not a good person, but they just may not be a fit for your organization. They could be a great fit somewhere else. But as soon as you realize that they're not going to be a fit for the organization, you got to figure out a way to, you know, to gracefully exit them from your organization as quickly as possible. The longer they stay in that seat, the faster you lose credibility with you, with the staff and go, we talk about all these cultural values and yet you, this person is inconsistent with those. And because they're talented at what they do, you let them survive. And I think the longer you let them sit in that seat, the, the quicker you lose credibility. And so once you recognize that, you've got to make the change right away. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point in exiting people with, uh, with grace. One of the things that has come up uh, a lot on, on this podcast that many other entrepreneurs have talked about is a challenge that sometimes exists in terms of managers being resistant to, to uh, deal with performance challenges on their team, that there's uh, a natural human instinct to avoid conflict uh, and to not necessarily deal with difficult decisions. And in your case, in your company, you would have hundreds of managers. How do you build a culture where managers don't just say, oh, ignore an HR issue and let it fester. And then eventually it's a big you know, mistake versus making a tough decision that, you know what, sometimes uh, it's better to rip the bandaid off uh, and gracefully exit the person rather than just let an issue fester over time. Yeah. Uh, so we did have that problem for a while where you know, people would let underperformers uh, you know, stay in their seats for a long time. They're like, well, at least they're 25% of another person's productivity, but I'll just get more and more people. 
He said, well, you know, <laughs> at some point that comes to an end because you just become so bloated. And, and honestly, for the rest of the team, it becomes demotivating saying, you know, you're allowing this underperformer to continue along here when you're holding everybody else to a higher standard. So one of the things that helped us, we, you know, we implemented a calibration system where you sit down with a, a group of peers and you evaluate teams of people. And, and so if they rank inconsistent, you know, if they're inconsistent for, you know, two, um, uh, two reviews in a row, then you've got a number of peers going, well, hey, how can you let this continue? You've had somebody that's been rated as inconsistent. They're not underperforming for two in a row. You know, immediately it's, it's time to make a decision. So yes, it may last for six months, but you don't have these people sitting in, in the seat underperforming for years at a time. If they continue to rate inconsistent um, and it's sort of a, a peer group that evaluates their performance. So you get perspectives from different uh, departments, different, uh, different team members. And so it's not a single manager that says, I, I rate them, you know, uh, I rate them uh, as, a, as a high performer when there could be four other people doing the calibration going, everybody else sees it differently. And you have a discussion, a healthy debate around, you know, hey, is this somebody we could rehab? Can we, can we uh, get them, you know, get, uh, can we get them on a program to get them better? Or is this somebody who's just not a fit for the organization? And, and so, you know, it creates a bit of a peer pressure to make sure that the underperformers are identified as such and that, um, um, and that they don't continue along on the team if they're, um, if they continue to be underperformers. On the topic of uh, talent, you've hired to hire uh, thousands of people and your company has grown a ton over the last uh, five uh, years in particular. How have you scaled your talent acquisition uh, operations to hire so many people while maintaining a high bar uh, of employee excellence? Well, I think, you know, it's been the one, you know, getting the, the right recruiters and trying to work on our employer brand. Uh, we spend an awful lot of time that I mean, you have to uh, pitch for talent the same way you pitch for new customers. Um, and in fact, it's probably more difficult these days to get uh, the, the talent in. And so we made incredible investments in, um, in our, uh, in our, in our recruiting teams. And we've, you know, broadened the base of, uh, to sort of where we fill the funnel uh, for talent. Um, but I still think that, you know, we, we struggle a little bit with an employer brand. I think, you know, the thing that, um, you know, defines us as part of our culture we talked about earlier, which is, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're incredibly competitive and love to win, but we're humble. Um, it serves us well sometimes, but, you know, we, um, I run into frequently to people in the Toronto tech community that still don't know who point click care is, uh, even at our scale. And so I think we need to do a better job of really promoting our employer brand, uh, which means sometimes we need to you know, tuck that humility away and talk about all the great things we do and the great things we do for our team members. Before this interview, I did a little research on your executive team, and it's an incredibly impressive group of people uh, reading through uh, their uh, biographies. What have you found have been some of the most effective tactics in terms of recruiting executive leaders uh, to join your company? Yeah. So I think uh, very quickly, we recognize if we want to find somebody who had done the, the job for a company larger than us, public or private, uh, private equity backed, uh, who had see, seen it before, we had to start with a coast to coast search. We couldn't start and say, hey, we'll start in the GTA and then move Ontario wide and then Canada wide. We said, look, what's most important is not where they live or where their location is. It's are they the best fit for the organization? So we would start coast to coast search for the, you know, for all the C-level positions, we would use an executive search firm and, uh, and, you know, and go as wide as we could to try and find the best talent independent of where they were and be comfortable with, you know, you know tolerating the, the commute. And, you know, a, a huge chunk of our executive team is in Boston, but they, you know, 
uh, during, you know, when, when we moved to the pen, you know, when the pandemic hit, it was a real challenge for us to make the adaptation because most of these people had been only traveling, you know, every, you know, some every week, but some every second week into, uh, to our headquarters in Toronto. Um, so it was a fairly, fairly smooth transition. Um, but I think, you know, just casting the widest net possible and trying to find those people that are a cultural fit and that have the, you know, the, the skill set and the experiences we need to grow the organization. On the topic, uh, kind of shifting gears about the Canadian uh, startup ecosystem in general, uh, it's an unfortunate fact that there are very few companies in the country uh, that reach the size of Point Click Care. Uh, I was, I saw you know, a recent article that I, I believe your company is, has been public knowledge that it's worth uh, over $4 billion. Uh, you employ thousands of, of people uh, across uh, the country. Uh, and relative to the United States on a proportional level, there are far fewer companies in Canada uh, that are a point click care size, uh, even taking into account our population than, than in the United States. Why do you think uh, this gap between Canada and the United States exists when it comes to the tech sector? Yeah, it's it. Uh, so I have interesting insights. Um, I've spent a lot of time um, since uh, Labor Day of last year when I made the change to executive chair uh, with them. So I spent a lot of time with Canadian startups and scale up companies. And, um, and I ran into a number of them that, that seemed to have a lot of the same challenges. And I'm like, you know, companies in San Francisco would not have this challenge. Why are they, all, they have the same challenge? And so I started to peel back the layers of the onion and all the ones that were sort of under 10 million in recurring revenue had sort of the same challenges. The one that's the ones that were north of there was different. And I think part of the problem is that, um, Canadian companies get capital from the wrong sources early. There is not a healthy um, competitive market for seed um, and early stage capital. And so what happens to these founders? They go, oh, you know, I didn't get a great valuation. This I'm going to go to the angel investors. And they get find these angel investors. And then they wind up with the board. I'm like, well, tell, just tell me a little bit about your board. And this happened to me half a dozen times in the fall. Said uh, this guy made his money in oil and gas, and this lady, uh, she's more a mining person, and uh, and oh, and this guy's a really great corporate lawyer. I'm like, how many of them have ever built a software company? The answer is zero. So they're all smart, but they have no idea. There's a playbook on how to build a startup uh, business to business software company, and they have no idea what it is. So they're giving you good advice. They're just a bunch of smart people sitting around the table that have no idea, no pattern recognition at all. The problem is that you know they what they needed was a venture capitalist that focuses on software, and they needed someone to come in and give them a healthy valuation, not a hey I've only got one other competitor in Canada valuation because it's a local game. Like someone from San Francisco or Boston or Austin isn't going to come in and write a million dollar check and pay attention to it. It's a local game, and so if there's not competition there, then one of two things happens: they either go and get capital from the wrong source that isn't helpful to them, or they give up too much of the company too early. So they got this crappy valuation and then they go to their series A. By the time they get to their series A, the founders own 30% of the company. And guess what happens? As soon as it's hard for them to recruit executives, their owners, American-based, likely by the series A, say it's time to move the headquarters to Boston or Philadelphia or Austin or San Francisco. And then they're gone. So they never scale. So I think if there was a healthier early stage uh, venture community in Canada that was competitive, that actually paid up with proper valuations, then entrepreneurs would take money from the right sources, local sources in Canada, scale their companies. By the time they got to Series A, they would still, the founders would own the vast majority of the company. And by the time they get the Series B, they probably still control the company and they could remain in Canada and scale in Canada and not be, uh, I know 100% for sure if my brother and I didn't control the company, 
that we would, our headquarters, given that 95% of our business is south of the border, would have been moved to somewhere in the, the US 10 years ago. There's no doubt in my mind. But we wanted to build a great company in Canada that was you know, mind and management headquartered in Canada. Even though 40% of our staff is in the US, the mind and management headquarters is in Canada. Um, and that wouldn't have happened unless we controlled the company. So if we want to change that dynamic, start at the very beginning, get a healthy, vibrant venture community that will pay proper valuation so that people will get money from the right source in Canada and still control the company by the time they get through their Series A financing. I'm sure you could have sold a company at various points and gone on and lived on a beach somewhere and just not you know, worried about anything um, for, for the rest of your life. Uh, what kept you motivated to not sell out uh, and uh, to keep on building Point Click Care bigger and bigger? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I've always had ambitions of building a, an incredibly, uh, you know, successful, large Canadian headquarter company. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to hear the stories about, you know, uh, you know, Nortel or Blackberry. I mean, there should be Canadian stories, more Shopify's, more Point Click Cares that create, you know, scale businesses that are still, you know, Canadian uh, headquartered. And I have a passion for doing that. But I've also seen that, you know, the more organizations we get that are measured in the hundreds of millions and ultimately in the billions of revenue, it helps the, the entire ecosystem. So where every time I've had to go get a C-level officer that's done it for a company larger than us before, the universe of Canadian companies I could recruit from or that had that experience is infinitesimally small. So I necessarily have to look south of the border. But I've watched people who joined us at 25 and stuck around to 200 million or joined at 100 and left at you know, 300 million of revenue. And they've gone on after they've left us to become the COO and then president or CEO of the next $25 million company going on 50 or $80 million company going on 150. And now watching that going, oh, right. So the next wave of companies that is you know, approaching the 100 million or the $200 million threshold, there are places that they can, that they can, you know, Canadians that they can find to do that job who have done it before in Canada. And I think the more companies we can get crossing the, that threshold of the, you know, 100 million, then 500 million, a billion, the more people that we will have domestically to, to, to run the next wave of, uh, of technology companies. And so I have a passion for, you know, what, being a part of making that happen and seeing, you know, I used to get sad when, you know, people who grew up with us, you know, they, they sort of hit that, the, uh, the upper limits of where they're capable at. And then I watch them go leave and go run another company that and take them through that same journey again. And it's so incredibly rewarding to, to see that happen. I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's at the core of Venture for Canada's mission. And that's our thesis as, as an organization that the most effective way to develop entrepreneurial talent is to have uh, entrepreneurial young people work in uh, startups and scale-ups and small businesses across the country, because that's ultimately where you learn uh, how to build a, a really successful business over time. And there's an excellent book uh, called The Startup Community Way by Brad Feld, which I'm just looking over there, where he talks about that, that, that there's all these incubators, accelerators that kind of across the world in, in Canada. But his argument is like the greatest single driver of entrepreneurial or incubator of entrepreneurial talent are really successful technology companies, that one really successful technology company will spawn out way more entrepreneurs than any incubator or than most incubators and accelerators ever will. I, I couldn't agree more. I've just watched, you know, talent that has uh, left us and and the impact that they've made on other organizations. It's incredible. It, they, you know, they go in and they have this, this like, it, 
you can get smart people sitting around you can solve problems, but you know, time is the enemy and you iterate and iterate and iterate. And maybe you'll get to the right conclusion. But when you bring somebody in who's done it before, like you just, you cut out all those cycles. You're like, no, this is, we, we've already tried all that stuff. This is what works. And so, yeah, we may need to adjust it for the context of this business, but there's a pattern here and we could just implement it right away and, and, you know, shortcut this thing by 10 months or six months or eight months. And uh, I've just watched it over and over. I know that's the impact that we, we brought executives into our organization. That's the kind of impact that they made. And the people who have left us to help the next uh, group of Canadian companies grow, they've had an immediate impact on those organizations and changed the angle of growth. It's been incredible to watch. Mike, it's been a true pleasure speaking with you. We've covered a wide range of topics from uh, culture and how to scale culture to talent retention, to talent recruitment, uh, to uh, some of the challenges in building uh, really successful uh, technology companies here in Canada. What you built at Point Click Care is incredibly impressive and a phenomenal role model for so many entrepreneurs across the country. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Great. The pleasure is mine. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of A New Wave of Entrepreneurship. Stay connected with us via our social and our email list. Subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. If you have feedback on today's episode, tweet us at Venture4Canada, that is Venture, the number four, Canada, or email us at podcast at Venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. I'm Scott Stewart, and until next time, stay safe, stay motivated, and stay grateful. A new wave of entrepreneurship is produced by Latifa Farah. Editing and mixing also done by Latifa Farah. Erica Ormanston is our editorial assistant. Mark Wallach and Premium Beat own the copyright and publishing rights related to the song used in this podcast. The comments and opinions, recommendations, or suggestions expressed on the podcast by the guests are not liable to Venture for Canada and belong solely to each individual. Any information provided stated by our guests and our host is independent of Venture for Canada. A new wave of entrepreneurship is a Venture for Canada brand and all content is owned by Venture for Canada. If you'd like to use our content, please reach out to us at podcast at venture4, that's spelled F-O-R, Canada.ca.